All right, so John 17, just a little bit of context, is the real Lord's Prayer. So we've got the Lord's Prayer that we know about in Matthew 6, where Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray. But in John 17, we find this beautiful prayer that Jesus prays himself. So it's also the Lord's Prayer. And it's the longest recorded prayer that we have of Jesus in the Gospels. And we're going to see this beautiful, beautiful prayer that he prayed. And it's also called the High Priestly Prayer. So maybe in your Bible, you might have a heading that says High Priestly Prayer. But a lot of us don't really understand the significance of, of a priest. So it's always good to understand what it means when it says that it's a high priestly prayer. Because it gives us context to the importance of this prayer that we're about to look at this morning. So what does it mean that Jesus is our high priest? And one of the theologians, Albert Moeller, he helps us understand this a little bit. If we go back to the Old Testament, we see that there are three offices or um, appointments or positions of authority that God gives people. So the first is prophet, the second is king, and the third is priest. So these are positions of authority that are set up by God. And so prophets were called and they were anointed by God. They were filled with God's spirit and they would speak God's word to his people. And it was usually to call his people back to him. So that's what prophets did. We know Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. There were many prophets in the Old Testament. So that's prophets. Then you got kings, and kings governed, or they guarded their kingdom. You don't get a, a king without a kingdom. So they ruled over their kingdoms, but they were also there to serve the people, to serve the best interests of the people. And then there were priests, and especially the high priest, who acted as an intermediary or a go-between between God's people and God. So the priest would pray for people. He would offer sacrifices on behalf of people for his sin and for their sin. A holy God and a sinful man cannot be in relationship. And so sacrifices need to be offered and prayers need to be offered. Otherwise, you couldn't be in right standing with God. And so if the high priest didn't pray for you, you couldn't be in right standing with God. And so in the Old Testament, these different roles were fulfilled by different people. But then you get Jesus. And Jesus fulfills all three of these roles. Number one, he's the ultimate prophet. Because not only did he speak God's word, he is God, and he is the word of God. We read about that in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So that's Jesus. He is the ultimate prophet. And then he's the supreme king. He's ruling over all things, and especially over his church by his Word and his Spirit. And as our king, he served us in the most incredible way, the most loving and selfless way, he died on the cross to save us, and he protects us, and he provides for us, and he defends us as our king. He's the king of kings. He's the ultimate authority. And his kingdom, we, we sang about that, his kingdom is here and also not yet fully here, and it will be here fully one day 
and it will never end. His kingdom will never end. So Jesus is the ultimate prophet. He's the supreme king. And then we're getting closer to our text. He's our high priest. And not only is he our high priest, he is our great high priest. In Hebrews 4, 15, it tells us a little bit more about this high priest of ours. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way. Say, in every way. Just as we are, yet he did not sin. So not only did our great high priest, Jesus, offer a sacrifice, he was the sacrifice. He's a holy and blameless sacrifice offered on our behalf. And because of him, sinful man can now be in right standing and in relationship with God. Isn't that amazing? And so it is this prayer of this great high priest that we see recorded for us here in John 17 that we're going to have a look at. And this prayer in John 17 is uh, divided into three sections. You may have subheadings uh, in, your, in your Bible. Verses 1 to 5, Jesus prays for himself. Then from verses 6 to 19, he prays for his disciples specifically. And then we get to verses 20 to 26. And that is where he prays for all future believers. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning. So verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. Who's them? That's the disciples who he's just prayed for. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. So remember Jesus commissioned the disciples before he ascended to the Father. And he said, go out and share the gospel and make disciples. And that's exactly what they did. And they did it very faithfully. Otherwise you and I wouldn't be sitting here. So they did it and they taught others to do it. And because of that, over the last 2,000 years, the gospel has been shared. So Jesus' prayer has been, is being, and will be fulfilled. And so in this moment, before Jesus is arrested and crucified, he prays for every single Christian who was ever to believe from that time on, which includes you and I, and it includes the believers who will come after us. Let's carry on. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. And so we see this theme of unity in, this, in these verses. Jesus is saying that as he's in unity in the Trinity, so that is God in, one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying just as he is one with the Father and the Spirit, he wants all future believers to be one, to be unified. And what does this unity mean for us? Because sometimes we don't really understand what does it exactly mean. It means that all Christ followers all over the world, 
because we believe the truth about Jesus, we are united as members of God's family. So the minute we put our faith in Jesus, we are adopted into his family, and we are brothers and sisters together in God's family. And that's easy to experience here, you know, sort of in our freedom family. But I'm sure that you've experienced this with believers elsewhere. Uh, Daryl and I went down to Wendy and Paul's uh, daughter's wedding in, in the Cape in February. And uh, while we were there, we, ha- uh, we know friends from 3CR, a couple, Adrian, Adrian and Antoinette. always get their names wrong. Uh, very special to me. Um, <laughs> uh, and, um, you know, there's some names you just, you just can't remember. Um, and they planted a church in Stellenbosch. And while we were down there, we decided to go to one of their services. And the minute we walked in, it was like we were with family. It's the same feeling that we had here. We were with our brothers and sisters. Why? Because we believe in Christ, and that's what unites us. A few months ago, we also we went to a church planting conference in Bedford View. And even though the church there, we're not part of their network, we're not part of the same group, we're not part of the same denomination, they invited us to attend with open arms. And the minute we were there, it was like we were with our brothers and sisters. We were a family together. Why? Because we united in this common faith, in this belief in, in Jesus. And it's, and it's so beautiful. So we have family, brothers and sisters in uh, Stellenbosch, even if we can't remember their names, and, uh, and in Bedford View. It's, it's beautiful. It really is beautiful. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's not talking about uniformity. He's not talking about we all have to be the same. So even though we are diverse, different cultures, different races, different languages, different social and economic positions, we are all part of this family. And as we do life together in this family, it has a profound evangelism effect. We have to get this. It's not just so that we can be a holy huddle. It has a profound evangelism effect on the world around us. Have you ever watched a family who's very close? They're so close, they seem to just be delighting in one another. They love one another, they respect one another, they're close. And if you've never had that, or if you don't have it, don't you look at that and long to be part of something like that? You feel like you're on the outside looking in and you just long to know what it feels like, what it must feel like to be part of a family like that. That's exactly what Jesus has in mind here, is that as we live as this family unified, that the world will look at us and long to be a part of what we have, to be included in this. So as we are joined in the love and the truth of Jesus, the world will see the love and the truth of Jesus. Jesus is praying here we would have a deep, meaningful relationship with him and that we would have deep, meaningful relationships with one another. Our friend Rudy at the, I hope he's not still outside at the coffee because it's very cold out there. But uh, the other day I was chatting to him and he was telling me about this study that's been going on since 1938. And it's called the Harvard Study of Adult Development. Has anyone heard of it? Anyway, so they've been studying what makes people happy, what makes people flourish, or what makes them thrive. 
in life. So for the last 85 years, this study's been going on. So does anyone know what they've discovered so far? Does anyone want to guess? Chocolates. Anyone want to guess? Someone. If you don't know, yes, Pia. Sense of belonging, hmm, on the right track there. Yes, who was that? Relationships. People who are the most happy, who are flourishing and who are thriving, despite their circumstances, despite adversity, have close, deep, meaningful, quality relationships. That's what a study over 85 years is revealing. That's the key indicator for human happiness and flourishing, not money, not health, not good looks, not great circumstances, deep, meaningful, close relationships. And this prayer in John 17 is about relationship. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are in relationship with one another. We were created to be in relationship with God. We were created to be in relationship with one another as we are in Jesus as he is in us. Jesus' desire is that we are with him. He says here in, in verse 24, Father, I want those that you have given me to be with me, to be with me where I am, to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Jesus says, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. And I want us to have a look at this concept of being with a little bit more closely to go on a journey right back to even before creation where we see like we've been talking about God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit in relationship with one another before creation in the Trinity. Then God creates man to be in relationship with him. God wasn't lonely. He didn't need man. There's no lack in God. But there was a desire to be in relationship with man. And that's why we were created. And then God creates woman. Because it wasn't good for man to be alone. So he creates them to be in relationship with one another and to be in relationship with him. And then even after the fall of man, after man sinned and that relationship with God was broken or severed, God still desires to be in relationship with man. If you have a look all throughout the Old Testament, God is saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will be your God and you will be my people. There's this desire in him. He wants to be with them. And then the ultimate way that God demonstrates being with us is when Jesus comes to earth. God the Son, in bodily form, comes to earth to be with us as Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. And then it doesn't end there because when Jesus goes back to be with Father, what does he do? He sends the Spirit. He sends the Spirit to be with us as our companion, as our guide, as our comforter. And then finally, we see this ultimate picture of God being with us and us being with him. The last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. If you go to the second last chapter, chapter 21, uh, John records this vision 
that God gives him of the new heaven and the new earth, which is still coming. And we pick it up in Revelation 21 verse 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice, a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. So before creation, we see that being with, being with is in the very nature of God and being with is in the very nature of man. And that's what Jesus expresses here. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. And so friends, when we hear that human happiness is linked to relationship, are we even surprised? Should we be surprised? Because that's exactly what the Bible's been saying here all along. We were created to be in relationship with God and with one another. And as we do that, we will flourish and we will thrive. And yes, we do get hurt in relationship. We do. But we also heal in relationship. Two more verses and then we're done. Verse 25. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you. And they know you have sent me. I have made you known to them and I will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Jesus is speaking about the love that the Father has for him being in us and Jesus himself being in us. If we go back to verse 23, Jesus says, we looked at the unity part of that verse where, where Jesus says, I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. And then the second part, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. It should blow our minds that God loves us even as he loves Jesus. Say even as. God loves us even as he loves Jesus. Like, do we, do we actually believe that? Do we really believe that? I don't think we do. I don't think we do because I think we'd be living a lot differently to what we are if we believed this at the core of our being. For one thing, I think our identities would be a lot more secure. Tony shared with us two weeks ago about our identity in Christ. And the later author and pastor, Tim Keller, he preached a sermon on these verses. And he painted a picture which was so eye-opening about what is going on in the world today. And he explains it like this. He says, in past generations, the way that people knew their identity was their family told them. So your family told you, this is who you are. And if you live up to that, you have a sense of identity and you have a sense of self-worth. And, and it made me think of the Zulu word Ubuntu. And that's a philosophy that means people are people through other people. A person is a person through other people. So one's identity is through others. So that's what happened in past generations, what is still happening in some cultures. But now, in this postmodern world that we're living in, in this generation, we've been told, you decide who you are. 
you decide who you want to be. And you don't let anyone else tell you who you are. You go deep into your own heart. You decide who you are. And you come up with this identity on your own. And that's who you truly are. And that sounds very empowering. And it sounds very freeing. But what lands up happening, we make up this identity. And let's be honest, social media helps us. We curate this identity, we make sure it looks amazing, and then we present it to the rest of the world. So we create this identity very independently, but then what we find is we become desperately dependent on others to affirm that identity that we've created. And we demand recognition, and we demand affirmation of these very fragile identities that some of us have spent years creating. And we fall apart if people get angry with us or if they dislike us or if they disagree with us. But then what do we do? We just call them haters and we cancel them. And so we seem on the outside like we're very secure and we're very unique. And we still play this comparison game when we get together with people. It's very subconscious. Try and be aware of it the next time you meet someone new. You try and get the upper hand somehow. Oh, I'm better educated than them. I've got more money than them. I live in a better suburb than them. I've got a better job than them. We play the subconscious comparison game. And why do we do that? Because we want to see, is this person a threat to my self-worth? Are they a threat to my identity? So we say we're secure, but we're not really secure. We have to keep justifying ourselves. Because at the core, we're insecure. And why? Why are we insecure? Because any identity that is established on anything but the truth that we are loved by God, even as he loves Jesus, will be an insecure identity. We will always battle our whole lives. We will be insecure. Our identity should be established on the truth that we are loved by God, even as he loves Jesus. And, and we are not living loved. We're not living loved like that. And that is what Jesus is saying he desires for us. That is what he's praying for us here. And so I pray that the cry of our hearts would be to live loved like this. Because I think we will have a lot less emotional pain. And I think we will cause less pain and we will be less painful to the people around us because we will be secure in the core of our being in the truth that we are loved in the same way just as God loves his son and that knowledge of the love of God it should transform us deeply at a very deep level and forever change the way that we live don't you want to live like that don't you want to live secure like that? Aren't you tired of this insecurity that you live with every day? I see some heads nodding. I am too. And so as we meditate, and I would encourage you to go this week and to meditate on these verses and ask the Holy Spirit to give you a revelation. I really pray that as we meditate on this, number one, that we would be comforted 
and encouraged to know that not only did our great high priest pray for us before he went to the cross, he was about to face agony. He was about to face death and he had us on his mind. Like that alone should just comfort us and encourage us. But it didn't stop there. He is still our great high priest. And he's sitting at the right hand of the Father and he's still praying for us. He's still making intercession for us. He's still working on our behalf. And number two, I pray that we would be a people that would be in deep, deep relationship with God and with one another in the truth and the love of Jesus and nothing else. Because a lot of the time we just focus on our differences instead of what unites us. The love and truth of Jesus unites us. And not only here in freedom. It's easy, easier to do it here. But out there. And that as we live like that, that other people would see the love and the truth of Jesus. That they would want it and that they would know that they can be a part of this family. It's not exclusive. They can also be adopted into this family with naughty brothers and sisters. And then point three, I pray that the Holy Spirit would give us a revelation of the love of God, that he loves us even as he loves Christ, and that we would be a people who would live secure, and that we would truly, truly live loved. Amen. Amen.